Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 169, and today's guest is Justin Borgman, co-founder and CEO of Starburst. It has been noted that data is the new oil. It is what runs businesses, and the amount of data that is created daily is absolutely exploding. Every business is trying to figure out how to harness and leverage this data, and there are a never-ending amount of use cases. Well, Justin's entrepreneurial journey has really focused on helping companies with this challenge. While at Yale, where he received his MBA, he connected with a team that went on to create Hadapt, which was focused on Hadoop and was acquired by Teradata. His next company is called Starburst, which is on a mission to modernize big data access and analytics. The company raised $22 million in a Series A round of funding towards the end of last year, and it is centered around an open-source SQL query engine called Presto. Starburst is providing enterprise-grade features and services around this open-source initiative, which is certainly a business model that has been successful for other companies like Red Hat, Acquia, and many others. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like a discussion around the massive growth of data and how it affects businesses, Justin's career path, which started out in engineering and then moved to product management, how Justin got into entrepreneurship while at Yale and the story of Hadapt, all the details on Starburst and how they were able to achieve significant traction before raising venture capital, lessons learned from his first startup that he has been able to apply the second time around, advice on selecting the right VCs to partner with when raising funding, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, if you are thinking about exploring new job opportunities, make sure you check out the VentureFizz job board. It has thousands of jobs listed across all functional areas. So regardless of your position or level of experience, there are jobs waiting for you. Go to VentureFizz.com backslash jobs to check it out. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Justin. Justin, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Uh, so we have a lot to talk about. You're a serial entrepreneur, uh, so we're going to talk in detail about the different uh, companies that you've started, and of course, what you're up to now. But uh, but before we get into that, Justin, let's let's talk about data, right? There, there's so much data out there in today's world. I mean, it's just fascinating how much data is at the forefront of businesses, and there's so many different use cases of how companies are actually harnessing and leveraging that data. So I thought it'd be interesting just to get your perspective on, you know. The world of data now and how that you know affects businesses and their ability to use that data effectively yeah sure i mean it's becoming maybe even cliche but data is the new oil right it's it's uh it's sort of what runs businesses and and increasingly even you know um, enterprises that have been around decades are becoming really data-driven software companies and and so i think everyone no matter no matter who you are is sort of trying to figure out how to leverage data to improve uh, the experience that they provide for customers, how to attract those customers, how to keep those customers happy, uh, and how to run their business more efficiently. So, um, you know, it's it's sort of a, a necessary competency for everyone. And in particular, as more and more people will talk about uh, AI as a as a sexy sort of trend, you know, understanding your data and having access to your, to your data is really a prerequisite for even doing any of that more advanced um, work uh, in the first place. Yeah, I mean, it is so fascinating. You have things like, uh, you know, cloud computing has really helped advance the ability to harness that data and to do something with it from artificial intelligence and machine learning. Like there's, you know, so many companies that I could give as examples, but one in particular that I love in Boston is uh, Path AI and how they're leveraging data for pathology and, and really, you know, hopefully trying to help find a cure for cancer. It's just amazing what they can do now versus 
probably 10 years ago, they couldn't do what they do now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and in fact, you know, sometimes we have that conversation in interviews with candidates over, you know, sort of what is the, the mission and, and sure we can't point to as direct of an impact as maybe path AI or, or healthcare tech companies uh, in the area. But at the end of the day, we're selling tools that enable all of these companies to ultimately fulfill those missions. And uh, it's incredible to sort of see, you know, what people end up doing it with it. Um, you know, we have some of the leading uh, hospitals in the country using our, our data for research to improve uh, outcomes for patients, for example. Um, uh, so there, there's really, uh, it's a necessary uh, skill set for, for, again, every industry. Well, Justin, let's talk about your background. So talk about your experience. <laughs> sure. So I, I grew up outside of Boston in a town called Acton, Massachusetts. Um, you know, went to public school, uh, went to UMass Amherst for undergrad, uh, later went to grad school at, at Yale University, got my MBA there. Uh, and that's where I started my, my first business, um, uh, which was really around doing big data analytics on top of the technology called Hadoop, which was... Uh, uh, an open source technology gaining popularity at the time through, you know, uh, 2009, 2010 uh, on to today uh, for analyzing and storing massive amounts of data. So it was, it was created at Yahoo. It's how they indexed the entire internet and um, were able to make it searchable. And that technology started to spread to other industries as well. And really our idea at the time was, could we allow for uh, an analyst to gain access to that data in a very easy way using a language called SQL, SQL. Uh, and that really formed uh, the creation of our first business. So I actually left Yale to, to start that company with uh, a couple of guys, uh, one named Daniel Abadi, who's a professor there, and another one named uh, Camille Bidepopikovsky. And together we, we started um, that business, raised venture capital from uh, Bessemer here in Boston, along with uh, Accomplice, uh, and then a venture firm on the West Coast called Norwest. Uh, and ultimately built that business over four years before uh, being acquired by Teradata, uh, in which case I became uh, VPGM of a business unit focused on emerging technologies, open source technologies. Uh, and that's where we started to fall in love with a, a new technology called Presto, which had formed uh, from Facebook. and was really their attempts to build uh, their own uh, technology for analyzing all the data that they capture, which is among the largest volumes of data in the world uh, and creating a fast system for accessing that. And so that's what, what Presto um, was. And ultimately, uh, we, we left Teradata in 2017 and, and formed Starburst around this business, along with the creators of the project from Facebook. Very, very cool. Well, so but your career didn't start out like you kind of you know talked about, you know, you went to UMass. And yep. then after graduation, like you, you kind of went through, uh, you know, a career path as an engineer into product management, right? Uh, I did. Yeah, absolutely. No, I started my career with a degree in computer science and, um, you know, started writing software. I worked at uh, Raytheon and MIT Lincoln Lab. Um, and, you know, and, and that was great. Um, I think it, it created a great foundation for me. Um, but ultimately, I think what, what uh, I guess led me to entrepreneurship was the desire to have a bigger impact. And I think that's what's uh, so exciting about startups is the ability to sort of create something from nothing and, and perhaps change the world in some small way. Um, and, um, and that's sort of what, what uh, I guess led me to business school first to sort of learn more about uh, how that was done um, outside of sort of the day-to-day -day coding that I was doing. 
Now, like, you know, when people think of entrepreneurship, right, they think of, you know, Stanford and MIT, yet Yale has some amazing, amazing entrepreneurial alumni, right? I mean, there's uh, Ben Silberman, who founded Pinterest, Justin yep. Kahn and, and uh, Emmett Shear, who you know, founded Twitch. And uh, I mean, there's a lot more than that. I mean, there's just a tremendous entrepreneurial culture there, right? Yeah, for sure. I, I think, um, you know, universities are a wonderful place to sort of foster that because I think you you come in with sort of infinite opportunity in your mind and, and maybe a, um, a courage to go try something crazy, which uh, I think becomes a lot harder once you've been working for a while and you have a mortgage and you have kids and all those kinds of responsibilities. So, um, so yeah, certainly, you know, Yale was a great place for me. Um, it really created a platform from which I was able to kind of start this new direction in my career. And then when you went to business school, was that the intent? Like, hey, I, I want to start my own company and this is going to be the, you know, the, the time to kind of figure out what I want to, you know, what type of company I want to build? Not initially. I think originally my, my goal was uh, to potentially get into venture capital. I actually thought that would be an interesting uh, place to spend some time in my career. And, um, and it was actually for that reason that I even discovered my, my first business because um, it's so hard to get an internship in venture capital. Um, I would say probably every MBA student would, would love to uh, have that internship. So I thought it would be useful to try to differentiate myself. And uh, in doing so, I walked over to the tech transfer office at Yale and I, I said, hey, can I do a, a mini internship with you during the school year, looking at technologies and helping them find those that might have commercial potential uh, along the way. And so that was really how I discovered this paper that was written by my co-founder, this professor, Daniel Abadi, um, into this whole idea of, of um, you know, sort of big data analytics was, was really just a chance that that, uh, that was uh, a research paper that came across my desk to sort of decide, you know, is this something that Yale could potentially license? Uh, and, and ultimately, I, I sort of, through meeting those guys, uh, fell in love and said, hey, we should commercialize this. So it's funny how kind of life... Um, creates opportunities. And I think very much for people, it's, it's really a question of whether you take those opportunities when presented with them or not. Um, so I've always tried to be opportunistic uh, in thinking about you know, what I do next. And, and even this venture that I'm involved with now wasn't uh, some grand master plan. It was really that uh, we had gotten involved with the technology. We were all leaving Teradata at, at the same time. And and uh, we were starting to see more and more momentum of people using this, this open source technology and felt, you know, why don't we commercialize this? But again, I couldn't have predicted that, you know, three or four years ago. Yeah. Well, the, so you brought up Dr. Daniel Abadi. So he was part of the team that also built uh, Vertica, right? So he's got another, you know, success story from the Boston tech scene. Absolutely. Yeah. He's, he's one of these disciples of um, uh, Mike Stonebreaker. And right. Yeah. I was thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course. Mike's a legend, you know, Turing award winner, uh, one of the greatest computer scientists of, of our day. And, and Daniel was one of his PhD students at MIT. And it was uh, really Daniel's PhD thesis that became Vertica uh, and was ultimately commercialized and, and obviously very successful exit uh, about 300 million to, uh, to HP uh, a few years ago. So, um, so I think that's actually probably what even made him open to the idea of even commercializing the research when I met him. And, and again, you know, just sort of, um, you, you can't necessarily predict how, how all these things work, but it's sort of like one, one experience, you know, leads to another experience, which leads to another experience. Now, did you say Yahoo was using Hadoop? Like yes. They, wow. 
they created it. So it, it was really based on a, a research paper by Google um, over a topic called MapReduce, which was a way of uh, distributing computation across a large number of servers, essentially. Um, and Yahoo read that paper and sort of uh, reverse engineered it and turned it into this, this open source project uh, called Hadoop. Now, once you decided that you want to be involved in this and, hey, this is an opportunity to commercialize the technology, how do you get started from there? Like, how do you actually start building a company around a research initiative? Um, well, it's it's tricky, or I'll say it's a lot trickier when you're doing it for the first time. You know, um, somebody like Mike Stonebreaker has probably done this five or six times now, and and he just, you know, has to make a couple phone calls. Um, but for me, at least in the in the first venture, uh, it was it was very hard. I had to sort of figure out how how one even goes about doing that. And I think for us initially, kind of our first step was proving to ourselves that this was something people wanted. And we did that by trying to sell it. And I'm a big proponent of sort of trying to sell something, you know, as early as you possibly can, because it teaches you so much about what people actually want, what they don't want. Uh, you can try out messaging and positioning on them. Uh, so I think that was really, really crucial for us in, in the very earliest days. And then uh, ultimately, we raised a seed round from angel investors in Connecticut, uh, some of whom were Yale alumni, but others were just sort of um, retired angel investors in the, in the Connecticut sort of tech community. And that really allowed us to, to get off the ground. That was a, a $1.5 million seed that, that uh, was enough for me to, to uh, take a leave of absence from school and sort of do it full time. And how much of the like the the product or the solution evolved from that initial going to market, trying to sell this kind of, you know, research that was commercialized to, you know, how the company started to raise more capital and scale. Uh, yeah. So it, it did evolve. I mean, the core thesis I think remained the same, which was essentially that people would want to do what's known as sort of data warehousing analytics, essentially analytics on all the data that they collect uh, about their, their business or about their customer, about their enterprise, um, that they would want to do that in a low cost platform. And that's really what Hadoop uh, represented was the idea to store it all very cheaply in this free technology, essentially open source technology, and then be able to analyze it with the same kind of performance that you would expect from something like a Vertica, which is also a, a great database system. Uh, and so if you could deliver on that performance with that cost, that was really appealing to customers. And I think that was at the core of what we offered. I think what changed um, dramatically over time uh, was essentially what that stack exactly looked like. Um, you know, in, in the earliest days, without getting too technical, but uh, in the earliest days, we, we had sort of carved up a, a database called Postgres and we'd put that on uh, on Hadoop and, and loaded the data into that. And then, then we realized it was actually better to just read directly from Hadoop in, in these open file formats like ORC and Parquet. And uh, I don't want to go too much into the weeds for you, but, but there, was a, there was a lot of technological evolution that took place over um, you know, that four-year period to ultimately get to a product that, that we thought was pretty good. And it was a lot of the lessons that we learned over those four years that really informed you know, the creation of Starburst uh, in 2017. Now, how did, as far as the initial sales, right, for Hadapt, what, um, like, like, how did you get early adopter customers actually, like, pay money for this, right? Like, how did you go about, you know, that initial sales cycle? <clears throat> yeah, it's hard. Um, you know, it, it, for, for some companies, um, you know, maybe, the, maybe those that, that raise venture right away, 
um, there are there are a couple hacks that you can occasionally use, which is you you might have friends or or, or connections that can help open doors. Um, for me, as a first time entrepreneur, not really knowing what I was doing, uh, I didn't have that luxury. So for me, it was it was it was more just uh, hustle. Uh, you know, he, talking to as many possible people as I could find until somebody said, "Yeah, that's interesting." Um, you know, let me hear more about it. Uh, and for us, you know, I, um, we had a, a very large insurance company in the Midwest who um, ended up being a, a, a very big early customer. Maybe they were our third customer, but our first like really big one. And, and that really kind of opened the doors for us and was a you know, validation of the idea uh, and really attracted uh, venture capital to the investment. Now, where did you, the, the hustle part, like where did you find success? Was it going to like conferences where these people were generally speaking or hanging out or were you just reaching out blindly you know, cold to people or like what, what was effective? Yeah, I mean, events can be can be helpful. Um, I would say also just networking extensively. And, and um, this is maybe another advantage of being a student entrepreneur is you can immediately tap into that alumni network and people will be so receptive to you. Um, probably more so when you're a student than once you've already graduated, right? Then you're just like another old guy. But when you're a student <laughs> and you're reaching out to the alumni, I think uh, alumni are very uh, open to helping students sort of, you know, find their their own future and and be sort of mentors in the process. So that was hugely helpful for me in the beginning. Um, and then you know we stood up a website and would just sort of collect downloads. Um, you know, people who wanted to try out our early version of the product. Um, and we would follow up with each of each of those, even if they didn't want to pay us, at least the conversation was worthwhile in those very early days. Yeah. Now let's talk about the acquisition. So uh, Teradata is a much larger company, yet you were running the business unit under you know a much larger company. So what was that experience like? Because you were there for you know a good chunk of time after the acquisition. Uh, yeah. So I mean, very different in terms of the pace, and uh, I guess. Um, relative influence over the organization, right? From uh, being a small company, I mean, Hadapt was maybe 45 people at its at its peak. So, um, you know, and I was the CEO, I, we could change direction very quickly. Uh, I had a lot of influence, obviously, over our direction. Um, at Teradata, it was like 11,000 people when we were acquired. And uh, I was a VP, so I, I had pretty good visibility into what was going on, but I was also the new guy in the block, um, the youngest executive by quite a, quite a lot, and um, didn't really have uh, necessarily that same level of uh, organizational authority. So, you know, major culture shock, I would say, uh, in terms of our ability to sort of push an agenda, get things done uh, at the pace that we wanted to. Uh, and then also you get sort of sucked into normal big company bureaucracy and processes on, on everything. Um, and we tried to insulate our engineers as much as possible from that. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's just, it's just a much different experience. And, and I think for a lot of folks who work in startups, uh, I think this is, this is why you see a very high turnover rate post acquisition. You know, as soon as the retention mechanism runs out, whatever that may be, People want to go do that thrilling sort of early stage thing again, even though it's much harder. I mean, startups are way harder than than, um, than working for a large company. Um, but there's just something extra rewarding and exciting about about that um, and being able to have that level of contribution. And I think that's what's what's motivating about it. So we got to the point where you're like, okay, you know, it is time to to go do this again. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, I, I think that was pretty clear to me pretty early on. And, and that's no disrespect to Teradata. I learned a lot there. It was a great experience for me. But, um, you know, startups are, are what gets me excited. I, I don't think I will ever willingly take a job at a big company. <laughs> um, you know, hopefully, if I'm lucky enough, uh, for the rest of my career, I, I think this is this is what I want to do. And, and um, it's, it's just a lot of fun. Well, hopefully Starburst is the next big company that you're acquiring other companies in. Even better. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> well, let's talk about Starburst. So uh, this is your latest company. So, so what are you doing? And like, what is Presto? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Presto is like a database, except it's a database without storage. And that's what makes it so different. So that means the data can live anywhere and we can analyze it and query it um, regardless of where it lives. And that's really the fundamental difference between Presto and really anything else on the market. Um, Traditionally, if you think of, uh, let's say Vertica, just because another Boston success story, or Natiza, which was another Boston success story, um, those are traditional database systems where you would take the data and you'd have to load it into the database to be able to to analyze it. So there's that load step, and you've got to move all that data in. And that's the way databases have been built for 30, 40 years, basically since the beginning of time. But in this case, what's so interesting is Presto can do all of the things that a database can do, um, but access the data in other databases or in other forms of storage. And particularly as people move to the cloud and S3 becomes the cheap place to store data, uh, or GCS on Google or Azure Data Lake on, at, on Microsoft Azure, um, you know, this is a great tool for accessing all of that data, regardless of where it lives. And I think that's what's driven its popularity. Uh, it, it was created, like I mentioned, at Facebook. And for them, they had Hadoop and they had MySQL. MySQL ran the site. That was kind of the front end. And every time you change your profile, that was getting updated in this MySQL database. Uh, but then they would take that data and they'd have to move it to Hadoop uh, to store it for, for sort of archival purposes and to be able to analyze it after the fact. So those were their two data sources. Uh, they created Presto to be basically a fast means of accessing that data in both of those places. So you could have some fresh new data that changed on the website that you wanted to analyze in conjunction with the viewing pattern, the viewing patterns of the last nine months, for example. Uh, that's that's a kind of query that you could do across these two data sources. So that's part of what um, made it very special at Facebook. Um, it was also incredibly fast, so it quickly replaced something called Hive, which was a a very early SQL engine for Hadoop um, back then. And, uh, and what we saw was while we were at Teradata, we started contributing to this, this project and making it even better, adding more enterprise functionality to it. And we just saw more and more people starting to use it. So uh, that was why in 2017, we took the leading committers to this project, leading contributors to this project, and uh, formed Starburst around that to really offer an enterprise-grade offering uh, for Presto. So you can think of us like the the Red Hat for Linux, you know, uh, we are for Presto. It just seems like it's, um, it seems like it's, it's, a, it's an advantage when you have an open source product that has a community and people contributing to build more of that commercialized. Like I think of, you know, Drupal and, and Acquia in Boston, yeah. you know, another wildly successful company formed around an open source CMS. Absolutely. And uh, uh, Acquia is one of our, our favorites because we've hired a couple people who, who had experience there who understand that, that sort of dual messaging of, of you know, creating the 
open source community while also driving this commercial uh, aspect to it. Um, we just hired our CMO a couple months ago, uh, her name's uh, Jessica Iandiorio, and, and uh, she was previously um, CMO at a company called Miracle, but before that, VP of Marketing at, at Acquia. And, and that was one of the reasons we were so attracted to her was because of that, that experience. Um, so no doubt, I mean, I think this is one of the key lessons I learned through my first business is that, you know, um, open source just has a viral uh, nature to it. It's, it's like a social media app. You know, you, if you'd made Snapchat, you know, a paid app, nobody would have ever used it. But because it's free, it, it ends up with this kind of viral adoption that spreads globally. And, and that's what we found with our project. There's, there's people using it in China and Japan and Singapore and, and Europe and South America, and, you know, literally all over the place. So what is Starburst actually doing? Is it like productizing like this offering or is it more services based? Is it a combo? Uh, yeah, it's a little bit of both. We, we offer extra enterprise features that come with our uh, enterprise edition of Presto. And that is largely around security features, uh, usability. We just make it easier to, to, to deploy. Uh, we have more connectors to different data sources that don't exist in the open source. Uh, and then we offer support for that as well. So it's basically a much more packaged up version of this open source uh, software that allows it to be you know, ready for deployment in a real kind of enterprise production environment. You know, if, if you're a big company, you need things like role-based access control, where, you know, one part of the organization can see different data than another part of the organization. That's kind of a must-have, but that's something that only you can get through the enterprise edition. Now, is it very common for companies to, you know, large enterprises that have, they're leveraging multi-clouds, they're using Azure and Google and, and Amazon? Um, I would say increasingly so. I, I mean, there there is a gravity to data, so uh, it it is it can be costly or prohibitive to sort of be moving data back around back and forth around between these different clouds. But I think at least strategically, as they think about their long term future, they do want to have independence and keep a kind of independent stack that is applicable anywhere, whether they move from one cloud to the other or even back on-prem. So they want that flexibility. And, and again, I think that's core to kind of our value proposition, which is basically analyze the data wherever it is um, and, and you know, kind of lends itself to that flexibility. Now you, you um, announced 22 million in funding last November. So, so what was the process like raising capital this time around you know, versus you know, the, the, the first time? Yeah, this time was very different because we we actually didn't raise money right away. This time we decided to bootstrap originally, um, and and basically just sold uh, support contracts uh, to early users of, of Presto and and were able to to run the business as a cash flow positive profitable business uh, that way as we got it off the ground. Uh, and then to sort of fast forward through a couple of years, uh, we started to see pretty rapid growth. And it was at that point that we decided that there might be a bigger opportunity here worth exploring and, and you know, sort of taking on some capital to accelerate that growth. Um, so that was the, the motivation. So it's, it's a Series A, but in a lot of ways, you know, we're like a Series B or Series C company in that we've already got revenue traction and are actually growing at a pretty fast clip. So this is really to accelerate that growth. Yeah, so it's adding pure gas to the fire because we already have product market fit and there's revenue. It's... Exactly. You walk in meeting with venture capitalists, this must be a dream for them. You have a repeat successful entrepreneur who's generating revenue and needs money because of product market fit. 
yeah, it's it's definitely a much better situation than um, you know than my first go at it trying to figure this all out. So I I mean, it, you know, I, I I hesitate to sort of say everyone should do it this way because it's not always easy to to get something off the ground um, that way. Sometimes it takes capital to build something before you can sell it. But certainly wherever you can, I think this this certainly beats the old way. I, I think very often entrepreneurs think that fundraising is the goal and and make the mistake of making that their sole focus and optimizing for that fundraise uh when in reality you know raising money just buys you some time to do something you know at the end of the day you have to have a real business under there somewhere uh and, and in in bootstrapping you get to sort of focus on that real business first and then the capital just becomes gas and i i think it's a much better way to go if if you can do it was there any other uh, lessons learned from the first business that you've applied to doing things better or differently the second time around? Oh boy, so many lessons. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. I mean, I think um, I think I think I learned so much about sort of managing and creating teams and kind of what to look for. And I think for us in this venture. Um, uh, you know, we wanted to move very quickly and be very scrappy and, and you have to find sort of the right personality for that. That is kind of what I would call startup ready. Um, so you can't find them at necessarily any large company, even though, you know, uh, other companies certainly hire great, very smart people. Um, you know, sort of intellectual horsepower is not the only criteria. You have to be willing to work long hours, sort of get, get the software out as quickly as you can, uh, be willing to do whatever it takes. And I think those are sort of, some of the qualities that we look for, sort of that grit in, internally. Um, you know, I think also just thinking through the, the investor side of things, um, you know, in this case, um, we didn't really need to raise capital, so that obviously created a good situation for us, but it also allowed us to um, be very choosy about who we decided to, to work with. And in our case, um, this gentleman, Mike Volpe, not, not Boston's Mike Volpe, I always <laughs> to clarify that when I'm yeah. talking to somebody in Boston, um, but Index is Mike Volpe um, was just such a great fit for us because of his open source experience. Mm -hmm. He was an investor in Confluent, which is a very successful company around the open source project called Kafka. Uh, he was an investor in Elastic, Elasticsearch, um, also hugely successful, you know, public company now at this point. He was an investor in Hortonworks, which was one of the Hadoop companies. So there are very few people, I think, in this world who have had more experience scaling open source business models. And, um, you know, that was really additive experience for us and, and you know, sort of taking it to the next, next chapter here. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I think those are maybe just some of the things that we've learned. Um, you know, we touched on open source being a very powerful vehicle for, for distribution. I think that's a, a key piece um, of our, our learnings through the first one as well. Now, what, have, what advice would you give to founders that have that, you know, I guess, um, luxury of having multiple term sheets, like selecting the right VC to partner with? Yeah, well, I think that the key is really the, the partner themselves is really what you want to evaluate. I think that's another mistake that entrepreneurs make is they get caught up by the prestige of the firm. And um, I don't really think the prestige of the firm matters that much other than that first press release. Um, you know, that, that may, might make people you know, pay attention to you for a day or two. But at the end of the day, the one you're actually kind of marrying in this startup relationship is that individual who's going to sit on your board. So. I would be, you know, just very um, deliberate as you think through who that individual is. Do they 
add value to your board? Are there things that you can learn from them? Are they somebody that you trust? I mean, I think that's also very important. Um, uh, you know, when money's involved, people do bad things sometimes. Is this, is this somebody that you can really trust to have your back in a, in a, in a tricky period? Because there's going to be ups and downs inherent to that. Um, you know, those are, I think, some of the, the important ingredients. And then I would do extensive reference checking. I think this is my advice on anyone that you hire or about to start a relationship with, whether that's an investor or uh, an employee, is, is reference check. Because I think that's where you get the most complete picture on the pros and cons of, of whoever that person may be. Now, what's the plan for Starburst as far as hiring over, you know, 2020? Um, so yeah, it's really growth. It's all about growth. Um, we're, we're roughly a hundred people now, uh, and, um, and accelerating very quickly. I mean that we've more than doubled, maybe almost tripled in the last six months or so. So, um, so growth has been pretty astronomical. A lot of it is on the go to market side right now. That's really where we're applying a lot of that fuel is, uh, hiring sales reps, marketing inside sales, um, solution architects. Um, those are some of the key areas, always hiring and engineering, of course, as well. But, uh, but that's been more of a, a consistent, um, uh, you know, th throughout. So those are the areas where we're focused from a headcount perspective. And then uh, I think as a business, um, you know, with all of those new salespeople on, on board, we, we hope to do, you know, a whole lot more than we did our, ourselves sort of in, in bootstrap mode. So, hopefully the sky's the limit. I think, you know, aspirationally, we'd like to build a, a meaningful kind of pillar company here in Boston. And what is the sales process like for Starburst? Like what's the, the typical, you know, is it an inside sales model? Is it a combination of inside outside? Like, yeah, it's a, a bit of a combination. I think um, a lot of our uh, opportunities start with the download uh, where again, people are evaluating uh, Presto itself and, and testing it out and maybe doing their own evaluation. That may trigger a conversation, uh, which ultimately may lead to what we call a POC, a proof of concept, right? And in that case, they are setting up uh, Starburst Presto to connect to different data sources, running queries, seeing how fast it is. Uh, that's where our solution architects can get involved and be helpful. Uh, and ultimately lead to uh, to a purchase. So that's that's generally kind of the way the sales process works. So so how how did you learn how to how to lead? We talked about your background. You know, you started out as an engineer, moved into product management, went to Yale to get your MBA, and next thing you know, you're leading a company. So how did you learn how to lead effectively? Uh, I think trial and error. I think um, <laughs> a lot of it comes through just experience. Like, I, I mean, you know, business school. I think. Um, uh, uh, sort of um, tries to teach some of that, but I, I, I think the, the reality is most of it really just comes through experience um, and dealing with a lot of different situations. I think people are, are hard. Uh, you know, I, I had a VP engineering um, in my first company say that there are no technical problems, only people problems. And I, I think that's, that's pretty true. Uh, and especially coming from an engineering background myself, that's something that I've grown to appreciate and, and try to, spend more time working on myself is, is sort of how to manage effectively. Um, and also as you go through different levels of scale, those management challenges change as well. Um, when you're small, it's managing your direct reports, you're all individual contributors. And then 
you grow to a point where you're managing managers and, and, you know, the things that you tell your managers do, they get translated to the, to the contributors below them. And, uh, and so, you know, it's sort of like a, a never ending learning process, at least in, in my view, um, that is a, a craft you continue to refine and, and, and try to improve on. Um, but I, I think sort of the key things are, um, Caring about people, having some level of empathy, I, I think goes a long way. Um, being honest and transparent, um, those are also, I think, important values so that people can trust you. At the end of the day, you want to trust them, they want to trust you, and, and I think that comes from, from being honest and establishing that track record of, of honesty. Um, but yeah, experience, I, I guess, is the short way of, of saying it. I, I don't think it's the kind of thing you can learn in a book, necessarily. Now, how about your, your time? How do you spend your time these days um you know i know it's probably a moving target depending on the day but if you had to put it in buckets like how do you you know sort your time throughout a day and then what like how do you prioritize what to, to focus on um yeah i think that's another key um key thing for any entrepreneur is choosing where they spend their time so for me at the beginning of the week i sort of choose my three top priorities and, uh, you know, that may sound like not a lot, like well, only three things to get done this week. Well, I, I think, um, you know, it, it's always important to sort of focus on what are the three most important things so that you're not, um, you know, spending your time elsewhere and not getting those key, th key three things um, done. So I think that's, that's something I try to do at the beginning of the week and make sure that I'm driving towards those three, um, three things. Um, you know, additionally, I would say I'm always recruiting. So I'd say maybe 20% of my time, 10 to 20% of my time is spent on recruiting. So that's interviewing, creating pipeline for different positions that we're looking to fill. Um, you know, I spend a lot of my time in internal meetings because I, I think it's important that we focus on our own execution. Uh, and then maybe another 25% of my time kind of externally facing, whether that's working with customers, um, talking to investors, uh, that, that sort of thing. So what's the, uh, the, the overall scene in the Boston tech community these days? Like we talked about some great exits with, you know, Natiza and Deca. Well, we didn't talk about it, but that's another one in Deca and Vertica. So, so what's the, what's, what's going on in Boston these days? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great place to build, I think, you know, challenging infrastructure software. And and that's obviously what we're all about. I mean, just great, smart, technical minds. And DECA is another incredible um, success story, which has obviously produced actually an alumni network of its own that's created so many other companies like Salsify and Toast and, and so on. So, um, you know, I, I think Boston... Um, uh, Boston stands to benefit from, from more of those, right? Every time there is a big success, I think you see that where the, the alumni sort of peel off and, and go do other things and it just creates a very fertile ecosystem. Um, so yeah, I think, I think things are really good in Boston. There seems to be so much activity um, all over the place. And do you think your, your computer science degree has helped you, you know, to run the types of companies that you've been building? Um, I do in the sense that I think it's useful to sort of understand what's involved in building a very technical product. Um, uh, it, it helps to have a greater degree of understanding with your engineering team in particular and how hard these problems are that they're working on every day. Um, and I think also helps with selling because you become a more credible salesman when you know how the technology works. I, I find myself you know, in customer situations that I feel a little bit more like a solution architect. Uh, 
uh, I'm not as strong as the solution architects we've hired. They're definitely better. Um, but at least I can go maybe one level deeper than a, than a typical sort of non-technical CEO might. And, and I think given that we're very often selling to a technical audience, I think that's helpful as well to sort of understand the world as they see it. So any uh, books or podcasts that you'd recommend for, well, I guess it could be, you know, business for entrepreneurs or it could be just for fun outside of, you know, the professional realm. So I just bought the new book from uh, Ben Horowitz, What You Do Is Who You Are. Um, I really enjoyed uh, his first book, which was uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. I thought that was spot on for any entrepreneur. I definitely recommend that. I think that and uh, Peter Thiel's uh, book, um, uh, From Zero to One, uh, is are, are two great sort of startup books. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to, uh, to his new one. Yeah, the, the, the hard thing about hard things was amazing. And what I love about that book is the fact that his nemesis company was Blade Logic in Boston. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. I forgot about that. Yep. Yeah. So what do you like to do for fun outside of work? Well, right now, a lot of that time is focused on um, our, our son. He's uh, about 14 months old now. Uh, wow. So he's the other startup I've got going on in my life. And You're busy. <laughs> Yeah, very busy, um, but he's a lot of fun. I mean, uh, for anyone who's listening, who's had kids, uh, you know, it's just, it's just amazing to see the changes and the development and, uh, you know, it's like his personality has a new wrinkle every, uh, every couple months. So it's, it's a lot of fun to sort of experience that with him. Well, Justin, thanks for taking the time to walk us through your background and all the great things that you've been up to as far as, uh, you know, building these different companies and obviously all the great, uh, advice for other entrepreneurs to follow. Thanks. It was my pleasure. Appreciate the time. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.